For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. For the most part, the three of us um, spending our days together and sewing. We were sewing our, uh, Asia and I were sewing our priests' cases. And um, the probably the third day into it, you know, Asia and I had been left alone uh, in a room to sew. And at some point, Blanche came in and said, uh, show me what you got. And, uh, so, you know, we were, we've been working independently. We both came over and, you know, showed, showed her our, our, our nascent, um, uh, uh, Okesa. And, uh, we looked at mine. We looked at Asian and, um, I had what I think was probably an appropriate response and went, holy shit. Because she had done so much of it, you know, and, and, it, and it looks so wonderful. And mine was not, you know, was in a, in a bit of a shadow in that moment. And, uh, and Blanche said, don't compare yourself to others. Fair enough. And I said, don't, send, don't set up standards of your own. Again, I think fair enough. And she laughed. And it, we all laughed. Um, you know, and what was that, you know, and that's why we, part of why we chanted Sandro Kai, because hearing the words, understand the meaning, don't set up standards for real. And I think what was being recognized there um, by all of us is that I needed to do a little better than I was doing. Um, and um, and to, to, to not make the attempt was, um, in effect, to be sort of saying, you know, uh, okay, Nyozan, uh, special standards for you. We, we feel for you, but you don't, you know, we're not going to raise that expectation. Um, that's what was going on because, um, when we set up standards of our own in the context of practice, in general, my experience has been, uh, that what that is about is lowering standards in a sense so that they will be, um, easier for us to, um, you know, or more, even more, just more convenient for us to match. Now, setting up standards of our own doesn't always have to be a lowering of standards. I think probably 95% of the time it is, um, but not always. I mean, for example, I, if I get this story wrong, Tygen, you can correct me. Um, I think in outlines it's correct. Um, Tygen tells a story sometimes, I haven't heard it for a few years, about his time in Japan uh, where um, he took it upon himself to do some extra sitting. Am I right on this so far? You were you were sitting when the other people left the zendo. This was when I was at a, a monastery in Kyushu and um, uh, for doing a formal practice period. If this, if if uh, if I were talking about the same story, and this was actually. At at night, um, when uh, when others had gone to sleep, if that's what you're thinking of. 
I, I think that's, I think we're talking about the same one. And basically the, the, the teacher, the abbot, um, basically said, try again. No, don't do that. Um, and so this might be an instance of, um, uh, the teacher thinking that Taiken was setting up a standard of his own. Uh, what the problem there was, who knows? Maybe he thought it was arrogant. Maybe he thought he was discouraging other people. Maybe he thought he was going to hurt his knees. Who knows? But this was a case, one of the comparatively rare instances of setting a higher standard. Most cases that doesn't happen. We set a lower standard for ourselves. Um, thing is, uh, in American Soto Zen, I'll just, I'll just put this out there. Uh, it's not the main thing I'm thinking about, but you know, we, um, we set up standards of our own a lot. Um, there are many, many things that we can identify in our practice that is different than the way practice unfolds in Japan or elsewhere. Could be a problem. It could not be a problem. I think that um, it's very much a reflection of the fluidity and flexibility, the malleability of Dharma to accommodate itself to very, very different circumstances. In other words, in that sense, completely appropriate. And also, um, where these changes have been made, um, I think is probably relatively rarely a matter of um, somebody setting up standards of their own as an individual. In other words, I think that these things have probably come about uh, through the conscious exercise of uh, collective wisdom among the senior people in in a temple situation and come come to situations that are more appropriate for ourselves fortunate for ourselves unfortunately um, where that happens tends to be forgotten about in other words we we forget that we've altered the standard somewhat or that we've altered this or that element of practice. You can think of, you know, all kinds of things. Um, uh, for example, the fact, Kiyosaku, no, the, the instruction stick, you don't use it anymore. It's different. Um, the last lines of the um, Metta Sutta that we chant have been changed from their traditional form because the traditional form came from a cognate tradition um, that puts things in a way that as Zen Buddhists, we're not particularly comfortable with. It talks about rather than being free of the duality of birth and death, being freed from rebirth, uh, you know, with the, um, with the implication of, of a kind of thinking about rebirth that we might not, not have. Anyway, sorry, I'm being uh, a bit verbose here, but um, I have asked myself last week, we had a Taigan gave the talk and it was a really interesting talk. And uh, I thought it was a helpful and interesting discussion. Um, and part of what that had to do with was talking about where anger uh, fits into um, how 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 we come to to develop skillful responses to take care of issues that we find you know problems and. Um, and so I was thinking about that, and I've been thinking about some of these things because I've been having these conversations with Wade, and um, and I've been thinking about our 
our precept about, well, I'm going to say our precept about anger, except for our precept, the way we do it doesn't mention anger, actually. Um, our, our version of the precept, however it came about, says a disciple of Buddha does not, or excuse me, a disciple of Buddha um, does not harbor ill will. Um, and I've always had a little, this one has always been a bit of a challenge for me um, in the sense that I have asked myself, are we changing the standard here? Um, um, there are a couple of, you know, potential issues with it. Um, uh, you know, one I've alluded to, uh, you know, traditionally this is about anger. This precept doesn't mention anger by name. It, um, it's instead says, um, uh, do not harbor ill will. Now, ill will, you know, shares some territory with anger. Um, they're not identical. Um, I have many experiences of being angry at somebody I love very much or somebody who loves me being angry at me. Um, full tilt, capital A, real thing. Um, with no ill will at, at all. I mean, there might be harsh words exchanged, but, but it's not a matter of fundamental ill will. So, so that's one thing, you know, that, but the, for me, the, the more, Pressing concern is to say a disciple of Buddha does not harbor ill will. And, and so I'm asking, I, the question I'm asking, is this uh, a backing off for some reason from the full intent of the precept traditionally or, or not? And, um, you know, when we talk about this precept in the form we have it, Disciple of Buddha does not harbor ill will. Um, you know, there's a lot of wisdom there, obviously. Um, uh, psychologically, it makes no sense to, to harbor grudges and so on or to foster that kind of thing. Um, and it makes sense to apologize when you blow up all these kinds of things. But, um, um, Is that all the work that we need to do? I mean, oftentimes when we talk about this, our tendency in, in our Sangha, broadly speaking, not just this one, but the broader San Francisco Zen Center Sangha, because of how this precept is presented, um, you know, tend to, uh, uh, we say, well, say, you know, spell that out for me a little more, you know, do not harbor ill will. And then usually the next thing we say is, you know, don't hold a grudge, don't foster grudge again. Right on. Don't do that. But um, I'm, I do find myself asking, is there more territory that ought to be covered there? And um, so the question arises, is, is this a, a, a reduction? Is this a lowering the standards for whatever reason? Or is this a really a full expression of, of how we should be thinking about, about this particular precept? And, um, Why would we say that it, it may not be? Um, part of the reason is, I mean, probably the main reason is that if we just say, okay, you know, for example, I had this, something happened, there was an incident, we apologized, um, 
We're not mad at each other anymore. Um, you know, that mitigates the damage, but, but still in those situations, very often damage is done. And, uh, over time, I think of this line from Bob Dylan. I think it's from Mississippi. Again, we have experts here who will correct me. Um, uh, but there's this line, you can come back, but you can't come back all the way. Um, this is what I've experienced in situations where I've had repeated, unple- you know, uh, angry interchanges with people, you know, uh, get over it and we get over it. Up again, you get over it. And then after a while, you don't get over it anymore. You've lost the elasticity. So what's not happened there? You know, one, obviously the situation repeats itself, arises again. The conditions out of which that arises have not been attended to. And, you know, it's very difficult to do the inner work to to try to cut off the roots of our anger so that we're less, um, less reactive, right? And, you know, and that's my concern is that we may not be doing that to simply say, you know, uh, do not harbor ill will. Now, in being upright, Reb's book, when he talks about this precept of anger, um, Precept of not harboring ill will, whatever we're going to call it. The first thing he does, I mean, literally, it's like the first or second uh, paragraph. He he says, um, "This is interesting because actually, you know, I've looked at the stuff when we were translating. That's not what the precept says, at least according to the uh, uh, the document that they were working from." And I have to say. Uh, this this formulation does seem to be somewhat unique to our particular line of teaching. And Reb notes that he says, in fact, what the in fact what the precept says is, don't get angry. It's a much stronger much thing, and it's not just a um, a statement of fact. A disciple of Buddha does this, doesn't do that. It's imperative. A disciple of Buddha does not get angry. Um, so what's that about? Um, uh, and then, unfortunately, or, or not unfortunately, but, you know, noting this difference of um, the formulation, Reb immediately goes on to, to, you know, again, rightly, I mean, we need to talk about this. The very next paragraph, he doesn't talk about this disjunction in the translation. He says, but of course, you know, um, uh, when we're talking about anger, we're talking about uh, appropriate anger, inappropriate anger, expressing anger appropriately, inappropriately. And I think, come on, man, you know, you raised this important topic and you back backed away right away uh, because our pre, you know, and and if we're going to take this line, why don't we have a, something like rather than does not harbor a will? Why don't we at least name anger and say a disciple of Buddha does not get angry or express anger inappropriately. I mean, after all, after all, um, we've, we've done that with our, our precept about sexuality, right? Do not, does not misuse sexuality. Um, and I think that I, and I think it's appropriate. I mean, I think this is again, that we've the collective wisdom of the Sangha, we could say, broadly speaking, has said this formulation is appropriate. 
to us. But again, it, it does back off from this very literal and demanding, do not get angry. And what I like about that formulation, or I find intriguing about it, is that um, it asks us to do more. And I, I think that I think that the reason we don't, I, I think the reason probably we don't express it that way is because uh, we've looked at ourselves and and also said, no, you know, that's that's fucking impossible. You know, everybody gets angry. And it's true. It's true. We all get angry um, and we have to deal with it. Uh, and um, so, yes, you know, let's be realistic and say, you know, tone it down a little bit and not ask ourselves to do the impossible. Uh, it's questionable whether, you know, this, you know, really attending to the roots, the conditioning, all the the stuff out of which our anger arises any moment, you know, it may or may not be impossible to attend to and to undo and to eradicate. I don't know. But I will note the fact that uh, uh, Dharma asks us to do impossible things all the time, right? What's the Bodhisattva vow, vow about, you know? And actually, anytime we talk about vow in the context of Dharma, we're almost always talking about something that we are not going to quite actually do. And that, and the fact that we can't do it is never taken as a reason not to do it or an excuse not to do it. Um, it's that kind of just do it thing that, that Dharma has. And, um, all right. So there may be problems with the formulation. Let's look the other way. Let's, let's take the other approach and say, no, um, our formulation is a good one. Our formulation is adequate to uh, what uh, the Buddha is asking us to do with regard to our own anger. Is that possible? And I think it is possible. And I think it's actually maybe helpful in a way that I will describe because um You know, I express my skepticism by about our formulation by sort of saying it doesn't ask us to do it enough to to just sort of say do not harbor ill will. Um, there's more work that could be done, and there's work that could be done uh, that may uh, prevent the arising of anger in future situations, and that would be a good thing. Um, but there is a way to read our precept that does ask us to do that work. And it resides, I think, in the word harbor. A disciple of Buddha does not harbor ill will. You know, harbor, provide a refuge for. um, (laughs) To provide a place, a home, a habitat for something. As in a verbal form. Alice a few weeks ago, um, just in passing, somebody asked about rebirth and karma. And, uh, he said something to the effect, my understanding of rebirth, and this is, this is my understanding too, um, uh, is, is that, you know, you're on a, you're on a freeway, 
uh, in heavy traffic, somebody cuts you off, and um, and suddenly an angry demon is is born and is expressing itself. Um, all right, we do not want angry demons to manifest. It is good when they don't manifest. It's good when those things happen. I mean. You know, we had this horrible thing in Chicago within the last 10 days or so where there was an incident on the road, you know, an angry demon manifested, another angry demon manifested, and somehow a, a two-year-old wound up with a bullet in his or her body. So it's good to keep, uh, as Tom Waits would say it, uh, to keep the devil down in the hole. But the devil is still there, and the hole is still there, and that may be a problem. So... What does it mean? In other words, you know, we're not, you know, maybe the angry demon doesn't come out in every circumstance, but, you know, the, the, uh, uh, the home, the nest, uh, is left unexamined. In other words, all the karmic conditioning that we have, um, such that we can manifest in that particular way in a particular set of circumstances is all there, you know, just waiting for the opportunity. And, and so one way to think of um, not harboring is to think about actually getting in there and doing the work of um, sorting out that conditioning, bring it to mind uh, so that if we can't change those things, at least we can uh, change our, own reactivity, and um, and maybe there will be fewer problems out there. <clears throat> okay, so now we're we've made a distinction between what we might call the emotion of anger, you know, this outward expression, and that tends to be really what we think about typically. I think made a distinction between that and the circumstances. Out of which it arises. Um, Reb says something really interesting about another precept. Oh, this is it. Yeah. This is about, um, I think about not um, praising oneself at the expense of others, but he says it would be deceptive to try to stop the self-praising impulse without first uttering our self-cherishing stance. If we tried to stop it, it would probably just go into hiding. And I think the same thing could be said of, of anger a lot of times. I mean, yeah, um, it's good to start stop the outward manifestation, but it, I think that if we think our work as Buddhists, as practitioners, is done there, um, we are deceiving ourselves. There's more to be done. And, and to the extent that this not harboring ill will is asking us to go out and do that work of, you know, clearing out the various hornets nests of our lives, you know, examining our conditioning, examining our own reactivity, you know, sort of well and good. You know, in the particular instance, and this, this is one thing I, 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 you know, we, we keep trying to find ways to actually talk about and deploy Buddhist teachings in this really challenging time. I mean, all these, you know, uh, things keep happening. And, um, 
So I asked myself the question, you know, we've made a distinction between the anger and the anger's home or the anger's nexus, matrix, wherever it pops out. And we say, you know, we, we, or I say, you know, we actually need to be addressing, thinking about both of these things at the same time, not sort of putting it over one or the other. The example that I use, you know, and one that many of us share um, was this thing about this traffic incident, a traffic situation. And um, these are experiences we've probably all had them, but we've all had them as individuals. And, uh, you know, the react, the, uh, the nexus out of which are unskillful responses are generated are um, they have a special status you know they they tend to arise out of um, circumstances conditioning whatever all these kinds of things to which we have unique access, you know, I get pissed on the road. Um, the immediate thing I need to look at is, you know, my, you know, emotions that I would call mine. Uh, they have to do with my, my karmic history, not in the, any number of, you know, expanding contexts in which we can think of karma, but, you know, very narrowly, it has to do with, you know, what, how my, mother disciplined me as a child or whatever, you know, wherever it comes from. Private. It's about Eric. It's about Nyozan. It's not about the world. But we're taught in Dharma that um, lots of things, you know, one being that uh, you hear these things like, you know, your emotions, that's not you. Your thoughts, that's not you. Now, you know, the question is never answered what the you might be. Uh, the Buddha actually says, uh, you know, with regards to, uh, to selves or whatever, is that one cannot be apprehended. We can't find it. He doesn't say exactly that it's not there, but he says we cannot find it. Um, okay. So I am not those things. So those things, in a sense, um, stand outside me, and I have an objective relationship to them. I teach, I read, I distinguish myself. I, just the factor of reflection, looking at them, is an objectifying thing. They are out there. They're on the other side of the divide between this imagined divide between myself and the, and the world. But this, I think, does something really interesting. Because when we put those things outside of ourselves, you know, the question becomes, well, what's the boundary of them? Right? Suzuki Roshi, Paul Disco was telling me this the other day, today, um, you know, he was saying Suzuki Roshi would, you know, if he was walking around and he encountered uh, trash, he'd pick it up. Um, and the reason he would do that is because he, according to Zengyu, um, is because he didn't see something like that as somebody else's problem. He saw it as a problem that was there. Okay. 
Plus, we have all this thinking about the uh, permeability of the boundaries of, between self and others, right? So if we get, if we say, okay, all that conditioning that I am assuming responsibility for, trying to sort out, trying to clean up my karma such that I will not continue to do damage in the world, uh, if all of that is in some sense not me, it's maybe that little bit of it's uniquely mine to deal with, um, but it's not me. Well, then what about the rest of the stuff? You know, what, you know, going out in the world, what about the nexus of, of conditions and situations, for example, uh, that generate on almost a daily basis, uh, police killings in the United States of a variety? You know, I don't, you know, I, I'm not a person who sees those as all one and the same thing, but it's indisputable. It's a problem, right? A terrible thing. And, but what if, what if we approach a disciple of Buddha does not harbor ill will. And if we go to the point where we say, and uh, not harboring ill will necessarily has to involve um, attending to the conditions that continually produce these things that poison human life, poison the experience of all of us, um, You know, if 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 the if the if if, if the uh, precept covers that, then all of a sudden, you know, this precept is not simply talking about, you know, attending. You know, it's not simply talking about apologizing, not holding grudges. It's it's uh, calling for some kind of transformation, right? And it's transformation. I think this formulation of the, the precept actually allows us to think of this transformation as not exclusively um, about me as an individual. You know, if we can say when Hosan is driving down the road, you know, whether the angry demon sticks out in his face or not, the angry demon is there as he's sort of acknowledged. It's acknowledged by the simple fact that the demon appears. Um, and then we say, and so this fellow has, you know, this fellow, everybody else has some work to do on that respect. You know, then it becomes clear that, um, we have work to do together and as individuals to, to attend to the conditions that, uh, you know, keep allowing a host of demons to appear on a regular basis. And so in that respect, um, I think our formulation is actually really good. Um, and, and maybe even opens up, you know, I don't know, we'd, I'd have to explore this more. I invite you to explore it. You know, maybe it, uh, it opens up a fresh way and a less, um, reductive way to, 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 to start thinking about this precept um, and the way we take it um, beyond the confines of ourselves or our immediate practice situations and, and really see it as, you know, uh, part of the work that we do in the world, not, not just trying to sort ourselves out, but actually um, not harboring, uh, 
not harboring ill will, not harboring anger. That is, um, um, that's big. That's bodhisattva work. And it's not primarily, I mean, it includes, but it's not primarily about my being a good guy or being somehow pure. It's not that at all. And uh, God, Dogen has this great line. You know, it's one of these things, you, you know, he says, if you're going to be a bodhisattva, you're going to get dirty. Something along those lines. It's just going to happen. Um, yeah, so I guess I'll leave it there and open things up for a conversation. I don't know if that makes any sense. Um, but, you know, what I've tried to do is, like, open up a way for us to think about, you know, this this um, particular precept and our expression of it, which on the face of it, I find very limiting and, and maybe a little bit too small. But I think if we unpack it a little bit, um, it it shows us the way to something much bigger. So I'll, I'll stop there. Thank you very much. Maybe that was just pushing words around. I don't know. So comments, responses, questions from Yosa? Douglas, you're muted, sir. And I'll give you as good as you gave. All right. All right. We need to, uh, Zoom needs a system that automatically un- <clears throat> allows you to speak as soon as your voice makes a vibration. Um uh, thank you for your talk. Um, I appreciated that. I think um, the way the San Francisco Zen Center has developed its version of the precepts is undoubtedly very interesting. I know that Jiryu has some views on that and some interesting views. And there are things like, you know, that... Uh, you know, we've got the precept that the disciple of the Buddha does not intoxicate mind or body of self or other. And the original precept is was that the, the you know a disciple of the Buddha is, or it just says, do not trade in or sell alcoholic beverages or encourage other people to do so. So I sort of understand carrying the spirit forward, and it's a kind of interesting question. Oh, it's an interesting question of of trying to capture the spirit or carry forward or even expand the spirit of the precept in order not to be too literal. Um, Otherwise, you know, especially in the one of, well, just don't sell. Uh, Seems seems pretty narrow uh, in light of what it's trying to correct. But when you mentioned at the end that this is, you know, complying with the uh, precept against not harboring anger is real bodhisattva work. Something that occurs to me is that um, not, I have not read the Brahmajala Sutra, but the Brahmajala Sutra is where the 10 bodhisattva precepts were originally and Kumara Jiva translated them. And so that's how they, entered East Asian Buddhism. And each of the precepts there, I understand, is 
that it's do not kill, do not encourage others to kill. Do not praise oneself and disparage others. Do not encourage others to praise themselves to discourage others. That sort of thing, which really does make them bodhisattva precepts because it it is trying to um, deal with a problem, uh, the poisons on a not entirely personal level, but on a transpersonal shared level. And I, I think that's something that's, kind of been lost in the translation that we use. And, and maybe that somehow the Brahmajala Sutra version got into Tiantai in a more personalized version, and then it passed into Sota Zen in that way. It'd be interesting to find out. But I like the way that the, that the Sutra makes these not just, uh, you know, learning to be good Buddha scouts. <laughs> you know, it's it's not self-perfection. It is it is uh, dealing with a poison that is shared, and um, so I think your your insight into the fact that the precepts are are kind of bodhisattva work is is right. Thank you. Yeah. Um, if I may, um, uh, I've, I've spoken about anger and, and practicing with anger a lot at different times. Um, I really appreciated your talk, Nyozan, because you got into a lot of the nitty-gritty of it and the, and <laughs> the nooks and crannies. Um, a few things just I want to say if, as briefly as I can. Uh, in Dogen's Kyoju Kaimon, for example, his one of his writings about um, about the, the 16 precepts, uh, at least our translation says not being angry, which is different mm. from not getting anger, mm. angry. So, you know, I think uh, we have um, positive, negative, and neutral responses. Uh, you know, the Sandakai says sounds are either pleasant or harsh. You know, so we, we have uh, the, the second the second uh, uh, Vedana is about positive, negative, and neutral responses. We do have negative responses to things. So that can become angry. So anger, what, what the pre- this precept is about is what we do about that, I think. Um, so you're right. It's about transformation. Um, um, and there's actually a, a, uh, a commentary on the precepts. I think it's in the Maharatnakutra Sutras that says, not getting angry when it's appropriate is a violation of this of, yeah. of the precept, um, but this not, this not harboring as opposed to not getting angry. Um, uh, I once said to Reb, and he agreed. Not harboring is not getting angry is, is very 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 quickly not getting angry. So if we're familiar yeah. enough with the energy of our of our anger arising, it's not that we don't see situations so-called out there or in here that, that we can work to transform, but the anger part is extra. But yeah. it's very, very energetic. We all know that, you know, that it's possible to just have lots of energy around being upset about something. So, so to use that energy... I think that's the bodhisattva work. How do we apply that to the situation or to just taking care of all beings? 
So um, anyway, uh, not holding on to, not harboring, not, yeah, I mean, you were saying this too, uh, is to very, very quickly not, not get angry. But the anger arises, and then what do we do with it? And, and yeah. the more we study it, and all the things you said about it are parts of that study, is uh, then we don't need to react to it. We, can cho- we, we have some choice about how we respond. But there's work involved. So thank you, Nilsson. Yeah, thank, thank you, Tegan. I mean, one of the things that occurs to me is that, you know, there's the, you know, there's anger, and then there's, you know, we also talk about the expression of anger. You know, what the, whether the same thing, two different things, I don't know. But, you know, as you pointed out in your talk last week, and, of course, it's been pointed out many, many times before, um, um, it's an instance of turning away and touching are both wrong, right? I mean, it's like repression of anger. This was the dishonesty that, that Rev was talking about is not going to work um, or not going to be wholesome or helpful. The more common problem or is a, a commoner problem is that, uh, you know, whatever the appropriateness or not of, of a situation that's generating anger um, or expression of the anger may not be appropriate. And, you know, there's a lot of unpacking that can be done on the words appropriate and stuff. Um, and, I, and I think we should be thinking about these things, but in this, that instance, one of the reasons there are ways of expressing anger, you know, so not repressing it, but there are ways of it expressing anger that sort of feed itself, you know, feeds itself. So, so that I, I've had the experience of, you know, dealing with something and then want to actually start to express it just getting madder and madder and madder and doing more and more damage. And I, I think that in a lot of the dynamics that we've got going on now, um, this is precisely what's happening. Um, people communicate things uh, in damaging and hurtful and ugly ways and, uh, you know, whole segments of society do this and then whole other segments of society, um, you know, sort of, present the obverse image, right? And we don't get anywhere. We don't get anywhere, you know, because we're, I used this analogy with Wade yesterday when we were talking. It's like, I've got, I've got some eczema on my foot. It itches. It itches bad. And it feels really good to scratch it, except for the fact that scratching it makes it much, much worse. And anger can be like that. So... Nielsen, would you allow that anger has that there's a range of quality and different different experiences of anger? And that, oh that, yeah, yeah. Is anger is the quality of anger related to the object that the anger is in response to? And are there types of anger that, in fact, are absolutely justified? And how the expression occurs is maybe a matter of modification or calculation or adjustment. Yeah, but that ang- I, that angry is a is a fundamental human experience, and then you can it discuss its political nature, but you can also discuss its individual character. And I mean, I I've been called out for referencing 
certain great writers of you know the past, but it is a central subject of any serious literature or story or narrative or fiction or biography. And so I don't, I think it's worth recognizing as a real thing worthy of consideration and contemplation and meditation, not something to be necessarily suppressed in manifestation, but to be recognized for its validity as well, potentially. Yeah, I do agree with that. I mean, you know, when I tried to draw this thing about, you know, I made a distinction between the experience of anger, the emotion of anger, and, and where it was coming from, you know, and we do that, I use the word deliberately, objective. Um, you know, that conditioning that allows that response that I call angry to emerge is there. It's a fact in the world. And, um, or a set of facts in the world. And likewise, I think we can say, you know, we could apply that kind of thinking to some of the racial things, tensions that we're having. These are things, you know, it's not just how people feel about it. You know, that conditioning, you know, history, there are, it's sedimented out in the world. It's not in people's heads. It's in the concrete it's in the it's in the trees. It's in the air. It's a fact of the world. Um, it's out there. Um, it kind of doesn't completely even belong to human beings at at, at some point. Uh, so yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, and yeah, there are different kinds of different kinds of um, anger. You know, I mean, it's, it's been pointed out. You're pointing out again what's been pointed out already in this conversation and elsewhere is that. You know, there are times to be angry and there are, you know, I mean, sometimes uh, some of the conditioning I have that generates an angry response uh, comes out of very real things. Um, you know, if I if I go off on Tygan because I hate eye patches and, you know, it's because some guy with an eye patch beat me up when I was a kid and I forgot it. Thank you, Tygan. <laughs> um, you know, that's completely, you know. It has no basis at all. And so, yeah, we've got to make those distinguished distinctions. You know, but as, as I've been thinking about anger today, I've, I've you know, uh, been thinking of the Clash song, uh, Working for the Clampdown, you know, that has this line, you know, uh, let fury have the hour, anger can be power. Do you know that you can use it? Um, there's a lot of truth to that, just as long as it's used well. And, uh, Frequently, it's not as legitimate as the fury may be. Yeah, wait. Um, I think this uh, talk actually was a, a very good um, encouragement to set uh, because, as you as you said, anger, I think in, in a lot of ways, is like a great fire, right? You can't turn away from it or touch it, and and then what do you do? Uh, you sit there with it. You make sure it doesn't burn the whole forest down. Um, <laughs> but you also don't jump into it. Yeah, like you sit there and you face it and you watch it and you you make sure it stays within within the fire pit. Um, and and so right, we we do that with anger during zazen. Is we find a way to um, you know unclench the fist of anger, open the hand of of our anger. And just allow it to 
to the extent possible, um, float away uh, without throwing it away from us or or clinging to it. So I, I think it was maybe more of an encouragement to, to sit than you had intended. Mm, well, I hope so. Thank you. You know, the, the fire is a good analogy because we um, we feed fires or we don't feed fires. You know, to put it in Yogacara term, you know, we we water certain seeds, we don't water other seeds, right? Um, and uh, don't want to be watering those anger seeds. And when they when they need to be raised, then we want to want to raise them upright, do the right thing with them. I'm sorry, I'm getting lost in my analogies. Well, and maybe if we could just jump the shark with this analogy. Um, you were talking about rooting out the causes of anger and not just the anger itself. And so I think that's that's important to remember that. Um, yes, anger can be a good motivator to fix things that are wrong in the world, right? An appropriate use of anger, as we talked about last weekend and this week. Um, so letting the fire die down and not feeding it, you're still you're still left with all of this kindling and you know gasoline and matches sitting next to you um and so how do we make sure that you know those matches don't get struck and the gasoline doesn't get poured on it etc etc right so that's that's part of the not turning away is not turning away from like what's left over that causes anger even after you've allowed your anger to die down to you know a, a, a cool cool ashes Paying attention, attending to those fires. And briefly, I think part part of what Wade is saying is, and with this whole discussion, is that we need to study our own anger. It's not it's not anger because somebody else made me angry. It's yeah. you know, to to own our own anger, but then what what do we do with it? Do not harboring means we don't, you know, grab on, onto it. But then, uh, it, how do we use the energy? Uh, so yeah, I, and the main thing, I, you know, I I would say the main thing that your talk brought up for me is how much we just really need to continue to study our own anger and how and not. Not who I mean. There's one other point you made about things in the world, like the racial situation, is collective karma, not personal karma. So there's a so that that's a whole dynamic. But uh, our practice is about studying our anger and our grasping and our confusion. But anyway, thank you, Wade. Thank you. Yes, and I think that's why initially I've had some questioning about our formulation of our responses. I felt that maybe it wasn't strong enough encouragement for that study, which I think is absolutely key at every level. Yes, Heinrich. Good evening. Um, Good evening. Thank you for the great talk. Um, you know, just before the you started, my mind was preoccupied with uh, what is something that what you said helped me to connect a lot of things and. Um, what I understand when you said harboring ill will, it's, it, in my mind, it connects to fear and anger 
And at the root of both of these, it's that dissatisfaction with the uh, object. And fear, in a way, it's, it's saying, I don't like it, I will flee. And anger says, I don't like it as well. And, you know, I'll pump myself and attack it. But in a sense, both of these approaches just take us away from the real scenario, what we're actually dealing with. And something what Tygen says that said is that the anger, what I understood is that the anger doesn't, doesn't do anything to the event itself. It's just something that happened within us. Um, and I'd like to hear your thoughts about how to actually use this force, you know, of because in a way, in a way, it's like a, riding a wave when the ang- either anger or a fear sets in, and it put either it puts us in or out. But how can we use it to attach ourselves to the event? In a way, it's like a grabbing a hooks in, into this object and using it to understand better and channel this energy. Yeah, I think that's really. Um... I don't know. I, I I I don't know that I have an answer for you about the broader question. I think Tygen's probably the guy for that. But um, um, I do think you said something really, really insightful, which um, is is that you know our our ways of dealing with anger, our ways of expressing anger, can in fact you know be exactly what you said. You know, just the mirror image of running away. In fact another another way not to deal with the things that we need to deal with. I don't think it's always that way, but it certainly can be. Do you have anything to add, Tygen? Yes, excuse me. Uh, thank you for that question, Henrik. And to, uh, to add to what Yerslan just said, um, the point is to study the anger and then how do we use it when a situation arises that allows us to feel our anger how do we use that energy? And that may mean studying our anger, but also studying the situation, whether it's some societal situation or just some situation where we have some problem with somebody we work with or whatever. Um, how do we look at the situation and then and then think about, apply, sit with what what skillful means can I can we use to address this? So there's something that allows us to feel our anger, then how do we look at that and really uh, dig into what's going on there? And then what is the appropriate skillful means? And that means making mistakes and just trying things and being patient and watching, continue to watch. That's why Zazen is so important. Zazen gives us the experience of just sitting and watching our mind and, and everything that's going on and then how do we you know to, to to look at what's a helpful response and it takes a while and it takes patience and it really it really that really points out the way different aspects of our practice support each other because uh out of what you just said tie again uh it seems pretty clear that you know if you want to be able to uh you know, if you want to be able to deal with your anger, quote unquote, appropriately, 
um, you might want to burnish that paramita of patience because that will be essential, an essential part of uh, creating the conditions under which you can express anger appropriately, I think. If I may, a lot of people. Oh, uh, yeah, Randy, please go ahead. Randy. Oh, thank you, Nyozan, for your talk. I was just wondering, um, when anger arises, do we, I mean, uh, my own experience is that my body tightens up. And is there a way to notice the body doing that very quickly and maybe just relaxing the body a little bit or doing something that might uh, change how the anger is manifesting itself, maybe in a way to give us that little break in between acting it out. Um, do you have any experience with that? And kind of wondering if you could share that here. Well, I mean, honestly, I think the the best thing for that is precisely zazen, because it's zazen. In my experience. There may be other ways, but for me, it's been Zazen that has really um, provided a certain sort of acu- acuity or, or sensitivity to my own internal states. And therefore, you know, it's, it's no panacea by any means, but I do feel I am more able to pick up on that tightening more quickly. And, and sometimes... The simple awareness is enough to to give you the space to respond differently, um, you know, depending on how quickly the cascade of uh, negative physiological responses, you know, is falling on you. You know, you can have the choice of like you can see it, you know, you're, you see it coming quickly and then you can, you know, do some deep breaths or something like that. But I, re- I really appreciate your your. Um, talking about this quality of tightness, um, as is my wont, I, I looked into a little bit into the history of this word, the etymology of this word. And it's very interesting because uh, there are certain, and Wade can maybe tell us more about this than I can, but um, um, certain words are in, in language are very, very conservative in the sense uh, they change relatively slowly. And these tend to uh, be things that are very, very basic to human experience. So kinship terms. Um, there's been remarkable stability for 5,000 years now, um, at least, you know, from the beginnings of Proto-Indo-European, where the words for family members, the words for colors, certain very, very basic things have changed relatively little over time. I don't know if this is a case, but it looks to me like anger is one of these. Uh, the, the proposed root or historical root for it is on, A-N-G-H, on. And from that, we get anger, we get anxious, we get anguish, uh, we get it in China. Uh, 
but at least according to uh, what I was looking at, the, the key meaning there is tightening up. Tightening up. And I think that's really interesting because we can see in our anger, we lose our supplements, we lose our fluidity, we lose our ability to be adroit and skillful in our responses. So, so thank you for bringing that up because I wanted to mention the tightness of anger. Meanwhile, when you see it coming, take some deep breaths, you know. Our moms were pretty hip to this stuff, you know. We've gone on a long time. I think maybe we should stop it. Does anybody else who hasn't spoken have something they want to say? Jason, um, just a follow up from last week. I'm just uh, super um, appreciative that you took it upon yourself uh, to give this talk. Last week's talk was very interesting and kind of hit me. And I've been working with this notion a lot and sitting with it and just realizing like how much. Um, the variability there is in anger and like the nooks and crannies basically, which some of it is almost hidden to me, like um, which is just kind of fascinating. So uh, you exploring the precept a little bit more and how San Francisco tradition has brought it about versus the more strenuous tradition, not strenuous, um, strict, um, maybe strict. I don't know the right word. Um, but it, it's been a more food for thought. So many, many thanks. Maybe instead of saying strict or anything like that, we can say any of the formulations appropriate to other socio-historical conditions. Well, with that, um, I think I'll uh, put the precepts, the, uh, not the precepts. <laughs> All right, let's say our vows. Beings are numberless, I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to realize it. Beings are numberless, I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to realize it. Beings are numberless, I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. 
I vow to enter them, Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to realize it.